This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Book of Lamentations, chapter 1. It's found on page 685, and the Bible's there in your rows if you'd like to turn there as I, and follow along as I read. Lamentations 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire. Into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint, all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. 
My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Morning. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. My name is Michael Prevatera. I'm one of the pastors here and serve as a campus minister at Xavier University. Um, We're really glad you're with us as we enter the season of Lent in the church calendar. And for the season of Lent, uh, we are beginning a new series, as Josh mentioned, reading through the book of Lamentations. Uh, which was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Now, right now, some of you might be saying, the book of what? I've never read this. I didn't even know there was a book in the Bible called Lamentations. What is that about? And that's totally okay, because it's not one that we often talk about or preach on or read in church, because to be, to- to be totally honest, it's a little bit of a downer. I mean, it's, it's called Lamentations, which means uh, the passionate expression of grief or sorrow or weeping which I'm sure is not what most of you come to church for every Sunday. It's not really a great way to start the week, if we're totally honest. And so we avoid it, because we have this sense sometimes that church should be a happy, clappy place. Uh, isn't, isn't church a place where I should be inspired to be a better person, or get tips on how to have a better life, or a better marriage, or get better kids? I mean, be a better parent. Isn't church the place where I should? Pa- is it that? Is it the place where I should passionately express grief or sorrow? I don't think that's a lot in our mind. We 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 think about church that way. We usually have the association of exuberant praise or worship when it, when we think about church. Well, maybe maybe that's more informed by recent history than ancient history, because the church for many many centuries has woven in seasons of lament or repentance or seasons to meditate on our sin and sorrow throughout the year. Uh, Lent is one of those seasons. So we are in one of these seasons of essentially lament in the church calendar. And that's really important because in a world where everything is hard and scary, and often hardship compounds upon hardship, sometimes you need a place to be real. And even though the temptation is to come in church and fake it and act like everything is good and you're living the dream, um, we we need a place to be real. There's there's a lot of cultural pressure to not be real. Um, 
But a lot of us, I think especially after the last two years, have this sinking feeling that something is really, really off in the world around us, Um, that everything kind of stinks, that we are experiencing real suffering or know many who are, and we're not seeing a way out of that. So what do you do when things are terrible? What do you do when it feels like bad things keep coming in threes, as they say? What do, you, what do you do when you finally get out of a pandemic only to find yourself on the doorstep of a potential world war, it feels like? What do you do? I mean, you could get drunk. That's, that's an option. It's not an endorsement. It's an option. Just saying. You could choose to numb out. You could eat your feelings. You could get angry. And you could take it out on everyone around you, your kids. You could go online and outrage at somebody on the internet. You could wallow in deep despair and just give up. These are all options, right? But the scriptures provide us with another option. Lament. This passionate expression of grief or sorrow. When it feels like everything stinks, we need the book of Lamentations. We need scripture like this to feel our grief and pain. Um, And and if we think about it, Lamentations isn't actually that strange because the category of lament is really common. Uh, We just don't call it that, right? We we, We don't say, oh, that's a lament. It's, it's a, it sounds like a weird old word. But we have examples of lament all around us. You, there's definitely, in ancient literature, uh, there's lament in the Iliad and the Odyssey uh, and Beowulf and the Hindu Vedas. Uh, there are tragic stories and plays like Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet uh, that lament the hard things in the world. But even in, in music, this is maybe where it's most frequent, in, in modern music, uh, Nas's classic hip-hop album, the Illmatic, chronicled his difficult life of growing up in Queens. Olivia Rodrigo's recent album, Sour, is mostly a lament, it's actually all lament, about a broken relationship. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we find lament in scriptures. It's only strange because we have this weird idea that religion doesn't include our grief. But that's not biblical, because the Bible includes these poems and writings dedicated to the passion and expression of grief and sorrow. There are prayers encouraging us to take our pain and grief to God. And so this morning, we are looking at Lamentations 1, chapter 1, which is the first of five poems written by the prophet Jeremiah. And we're going to think a little bit about what was happening with God's people that led to this, the writing of this, what it teaches us, and ultimately, what we learn about God from it. So why... Or what is Jeremiah excuse me, lamenting? Well, in this book, we see Jeremiah, who is often called the weeping prophet, because he wrote Lamentations, uh, responding to the fall of the city of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. In other words, he's writing about a historical event that occurred. If you turn back a page in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 52, uh, you can read the details of Jerusalem's fall. But to summarize... In 586 B.C., the city that Jeremiah loved had been destroyed. The temple of God was burned and destroyed. The uh, people of, of Jerusalem, many of them were taken 
captive. They were sent into exile in Babylon, made essentially slaves. It's more or less the ancient equivalent of a lot of things we see coming out of Ukraine these days, if you've followed with any of what's going on there right now, just images of burned out buildings and people fleeing uh, to safety. Very similar. And that's, if you followed that, you have a good sense of why Jeremiah might write a poem like this about lament. Because war, ancient or modern, brings the same horror, destruction, and grief to people. So we have this poem. Chapter 1 is one condensed poem. It's divided into two halves. The first half, Jeremiah paints this picture of fallen Jerusalem as a weeping widow, as someone who was formerly a queen or a princess, who is now a widowed, destroyed, essentially, life's destroyed woman. Uh, Everything's been taken away from her. It's a great reversal. And then in verses 12 to 22, we actually read her words. Jeremiah puts the feelings of the people into these words of this weeping woman. And the whole poem is done in an acrostic style. That means every verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, essentially A through Z. In other words, this poem is a complete journey through grief, A to Z. It, doesn't, it just doesn't show that way in English, but in Hebrew, every letter, start, every line starts with a new letter, following the alphabetical order. And Jeremiah is laying out for us this aftermath of Jerusalem's fall, which was, many scholars point out, the, the most traumatic moment in the history, the whole history of the Old Testament. Because Israel was God's chosen people. They, uh, the city of Jerusalem and and the land they were dwelling in had been given to them to God. This is the place where God chose to dwell among his people at the temple. And they'd been rescued from slavery many centuries before and given this home. And here they are, attacked. And the city in ruins. And people enslaved once more. And the poem tells of great emptiness and groaning and weeping and weakness and abandonment and shame and feeling crushed and rejected and and feeling helpless. This is an incredible cry of sadness set to meter. And what's even worse about it, as Jeremiah acknowledges in verse 8, is that all of this is actually the people of God's fault. This wasn't just a random thing that happened. This is their fault. Because... For centuries, God's people, if you know the story of the Old Testament, had been turning their backs on God by doing evil, by perpetrating injustice, by not keeping God's laws, by worshiping false gods. And yet the Lord was patient. The whole story of the Old Testament is really the story of God's patience with his people. He sends prophets to warn them and to plead with them and to turn from their evil. But God also warned them and he said, you know, if you keep persisting in doing evil... Judgment will come. Justice will come. And though there were moments of renewal in the history of God's people, the Old Testament is mostly one tragic story of people continually turning their back on God and his ways and choosing idols and the ways of the nations over the living God. And so, in response, God withdrew his protection from the people of Israel and allowed the great raging empire of Babylon to invade and conquer them. So that's the context. That's the kind of situation that we're looking at that, that leads to this outburst of lament. But I want to focus on a little bit this morning what we can learn 
about lamenting. Because what I find so amazing about the book of Lamentations is, and the Bible itself but is that we are encouraged to be raw and honest with God about our situations, about what we're going through. Right? This, is, this is so different from the general feeling we have about churches or the, our general experience we have about churches, that church is this place where you have to have it all together and put on a happy face. Um, Hopefully you don't experience that here. We, we work against that. We try to work against that. We try to be intentional about working in prayers and songs of lament into our worship. Um, but that's not often our experience of church sometimes. And yet I want to reiterate, this is not the example of the Bible. You want proof of that? Just look at the Psalms. The Psalms are essentially the hymn book of the church. They're all songs meant to be sung, sung in worship. And a third of them are psalms of lament. They are prayers of weeping and crying out to help for God. Um, Psalm 88, for example, which is the ultimate psalm of lament, ends with the line that darkness has become my only friend. Think about singing that in church. And look at some of the things we read in this chapter. How lonely sits a city that was full of people. Verse 1. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit, my children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Verse 16. Verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. These are intense words of grief. And something else, too. The... the, the Hebrew title of the book of Lamentations is actually a question. It says, I know it says Lamentations in your Bible, but in Hebrew, the title is How. As in, how could you let this happen, God? How could you allow this to happen? The bottom, bottom line here, the book of Lamentations shows us that God is not angry with our hurt, our pain, our sadness, even when it's the result of our own actions. And it's so common, this experience of hurt and pain and sadness in the world around us, that almost half the Bible, I would argue, is, is stories of people suffering or in trouble or scared or hurting. It's all over the scriptures. And so we should lament because we're encouraged to do so by the Bible. But that lament also leads us into deeper trust and a relationship with God. It gives us authentic faith, in other words. We need to be honest with God about what we're feeling because it leads us into a deeper relationship with him. Um, several years ago, as a family, we experienced some really intense trauma and suffering in our family. And I was in a place where I was in so much pain and hurt and anger and that every time I got alone, which is usually in the shower, um, a stream of just swear words and weeping would pour out of my mouth. That was like, it just poured out of me. I was so angry and so ha- sad and so hurt that that was all I could do was just cuss by myself. Because I didn't really have any other words to use. And around this time, I was sitting in my counselor's office, and I started sharing with him about what I was experiencing, because it was so odd to me. That was not really my normal pattern to get in the shower and cuss. It's not something I do normally. Um, And he looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, have you ever tried praying those things you're saying? And, you know, being a pastor, my response was, of course, no. I would never do that. I would never 
talk like that to God or say those things to God or about God. And my counselor wisely said, why not? He already knows you're thinking it. Checkmate, right? And so the next day I took his advice and I turned that stream of cuss words into one of the most raw, undignified, angry, and horrible prayers I've ever prayed. A real, honest lament. And amazingly, God didn't strike me down. He didn't take my life right there. Actually, I felt God draw near. I felt a burden lifted off my shoulders. Off my shoulders. I felt that he stayed with me through that pain and sorrow um, and led me to a place of healing. And I don't share that story to encourage you to start cussing at God. That's not the point. Um, it's not the cussing that does anything right there. But it's the honesty, right? The lament. God wants us to be honest with him, to be brutally honest with him. He wants to hear our pain. He knows our hearts. He knows our hurts. He knows what we're thinking and feeling. And he wants to hear it from us, not just to clean it up and and pray some holy-sounding prayer. And this is what we have in Lamentations, a poetic account of a woman screaming in pain to God. And the Psalms show us, and this, this passage shows us, that this is actually true prayer, this honest faith, this real faith, this faith which has the audacity to be brutally honest with the creator of all things. As people said about Israel in its days, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? In other words, this is so unique in the ancient world. It's so unique in our day, too. What what other religion or philosophy has a God that is so near, so patient, so kind, that he longs to hear the groans and weepings of his people? It's only the God of the Bible. It's only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Only the people of Jesus can say we have a God like this. No other religion is like this. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. But you might still be asking, okay, I get that this is helpful and good and God wants to hear this, but how? How How could Jeremiah, how can we be sure that God wants to hear our hurts? Well, first of all, we can be sure is that we have a God who knows pain and sorrow. We have a God who laments, actually. Uh, our God is a God who's been betrayed. Even if you go back to the early pages of Scripture, in the very beginning, we see this. We see God creating a wonderful world for us and his, his creatures, only to have us immediately turn our backs on him in rejection. And in enters in all the pain and suffering in this beautiful world that God made that wasn't supposed to be there. We often read God's words uh, through to his people or just in general uh, in a tone of anger. Um, but what if God's words actually sound more like a betrayed husband or wife? I mean, certainly God is angry at the brokenness in the world and at our sin and at evil. But what if he's also anguished? at the betrayal and rejection of his people. This is exactly the description of God we see in passages like Ezekiel 16, this betrayed lover who is both angry and anxious. God's not just your angry dad. He's also a jilted lover. It might be worth trying sometime to read scripture in that light, to hear the anguish of God and the brokenness of God and the lament of God at pain and evil and suffering in the world. See if that changes 
your experience even of God. But our God is a God who knows pain and suffering and sorrow. And it's not just God's experience in the Old Testament, but as Christians, we know the story of betrayal continues even when God takes on flesh and dwells among us. Isaiah describes Christ, Jesus, this way. He describes the Messiah this way. When we sang a song based on this passage, Isaiah 53.3, Isaiah writes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's Isaiah's description of Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. God really can't catch a break, either in the Old Testament or, or in the New Testament, because when the Lord Jesus was rejected by the most religious people of his day, he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was abandoned by all of his followers on his worst day, except his mom and a couple other people. He was rounded up by a mob. He was unjustly arrested for crimes he didn't commit. He was brutalized by soldiers. His trial was rigged. And those in authority hung him up on a cross, an ancient lynching, essentially, where he died a slow, agonizing death. Our God is not a macho man. He's not uh, always happy and beautiful. And he, he, he's one who is not always hashtag winning or blessed. We worship a God who knows in detail torture, pain, trauma, hurt, betrayal, abandonment, and sadness. We have a God who has much to lament about and a God who laments. We read of Jesus weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. We read of Jesus weeping and lamenting in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. Jesus, like Jeremiah, lamented over the city of Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. It's Luke 13, 34. And as Jesus hung upon the cross, dying, he screamed out, like the weeping woman in Lamentations, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a lament. And then not long after that, he died. So don't you see? That's why you can go to God with all your hurt and your pain and be totally honest, because he gets it. He's not some far-off God that sits back and watches everything. He's actually a God who's been through it. He's gone before you. He knows exactly what you're feeling, and he wants you to be real with him, even when it's your fault. Just like I want my kids to be honest with me when they're hurt or upset, because God has been through it, he's been there, and he's also merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, you might be asking right now, Okay, this is good, this is helpful, but how can a good God allow bad things to happen? And the answer to that question, to be honest, is I don't know. This is, an, this is a problem people have been wrestling with for millennia. But I know that the Christian God, our God, went through all the bad things, too. He is, after all, a crucified God, and he has scars to prove it. 
Even after his resurrection, Jesus bears the marks in his hands and his feet where nails were driven through to attach him to the cross. He has a scar on his side where soldiers stabbed him with a spear. His back is certainly probably scarred up from all the whip marks that he experienced. And so the God who offers you comfort in your pain is a God who holds you with a scarred up body. The hands that he offers to hold you with in your suffering are hands that prove he's seen hard things too. And so we have hope. And even Jeremiah knows, in verse 22, there's a note of hope. Uh, He prays that God would deal with Babylon and bring restoration. Even though the people's suffering was their own fault, even though it seems overwhelming in the moment, he prays for restoration. And in Lent, the season that we're in, we're reminded of sin and suffering and sorrow, but it's all pointing somewhere. It's all, it's all going somewhere. It's going toward Easter. Easter, the day when evil, sin, and death didn't have the final word. Because on the third day, after being brutalized and crucified, we read in the Gospels that death could not hold Jesus. Christ rose from the dead in time and space and history and is now ruling and reigning over all things, and he will come again to right all the wrongs and put suffering and evil in the grave once for all. That is our hope. That is the Christian hope, that he will come and wipe every tear from our eyes and all the sad things will come untrue. This is not just about your sins being forgiven, although that is it. That is huge. It's also about the hope that God will rescue us from all the evil in the world. And so we grieve and lament and weep and be honest with God and each other, but we also don't lose hope because we know that Christ will come again and make all things new. We worship a God with scars, but he is also the risen God, the one who came to rescue his unfaithful bride and make all things right. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.